Please pray with me. God, as much as I desire food when I'm hungry, drink when I'm thirsty, and sleep when I'm tired, I desire that you would speak through me today. I ask this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I, I'm really excited about this, this message. I've been thinking about it. It's been something I've been chewing on for a while. But I'll confess to you that yesterday, um, which is a little bit late to have these kind of thoughts, I found myself having that moment of doubt, uh, thinking you know, the most important thing that you do on Ash Wednesday is it's your job to tell people that they're going to die someday. Uh, and wondering if this sermon was doing that in a thorough and um, direct enough way. And in God's strange sense of humor, uh, on my, I got up at 5 o'clock this morning, drove to the airport, and um, got on a flight, and you probably have some sense of what the weather's been doing here. I don't have a great sense of what it's been doing here. Um, except that I know that I was on the most turbulent flight I've ever been on in my entire life on the way here. Um, I found myself thinking about John Wesley traveling to the Americas, um, <laughs> wondering if any passengers were looking at me, which sort of camp would they place me in? Um, there was some, some nice, intense moments of prayer. Uh, it was an interesting journey. So I at least myself am grounded in my own mortality this morning and an awareness that uh, I could die at any moment. So what I've been thinking about, I want to just give you the sort of, you know, cuts of the chase at the outset. What I want to sort of leave you with today is I want you to hear the voice of Jesus saying to you, eyes on me. And I want that to become an echo in your soul that you hear regardless of the circumstances, in good times and bad times, um, and that your Lenten discipline would be reoriented around trying to keep your focus on Jesus. Where is he? What is he doing? Eyes on me. I don't know about those of you in, in the strange world of, of teaching, um, but I sometimes feel like saying that in class. Hey, up here, eyes on me. Uh, the competition with smartphones, and um, I'm pretty sure that sometimes the frantic typing on laptops is um, Facebook updates that are tangentially at best related to class. Um, I, who knows? Um, and I find myself thinking that maybe, maybe kids think that sometimes when they're trying to engage with their parents when they're on their smartphones. You know, this sort of eyes on me, look over here. Because what you're looking at has your attention, oftentimes, in a very basic way. And that phrase has been ringing around in my own head for half a year, eyes on me. I think that, that sometimes our familiarity with Scripture can get in the way of interpreting it, of letting it speak to us where we are. And that has really struck me as I've been thinking about and working on this sermon. So let me help you by stating the really obvious People cannot walk on water. I have a lot of kind of empirical data to that effect. Um, we spend most of the summer at our neighborhood swimming pool. 
It's the only place, really, that you can stand to be out of doors for weeks on end in the summer in Georgia with the humidity and heat and mosquitoes the size of my hand. One of my colleagues at Candler often likes to ask, who sinned that we have to live in Satan's armpit? We might have a variety of answers to that question. When you have three kids, though, ages eight and under, staying inside for months is just not an option, especially when they're not in school. So I've spent some quality time at the neighborhood swimming pool, and not once have I seen somebody moonwalk across the surface of the pool. And yet, in this story, Jesus does precisely that. Well, okay, the text does not say he moonwalked. This is a good audience. You're with me. This is, keep it up. Keep it up. More bafflingly, then Peter does it too. It's easy to do Jesus. Of course, Jesus can do anything Jesus wants to. Peter is like, hey, can I do that too? This passage is one of those that's so well known, it's also, I think, easy to think about it existing in a kind of contextual vacuum. The disciples are out on the lake just relaxing when one of them glances over the horizon and nonchalantly comments, hey, here comes Jesus. And he's sort of sauntering towards them, graceful hair gently blowing in the wind. And the disciples are like, whoa, that's pretty cool. So Peter, the most ambitious of the bunch, says, hey, Jesus, can I play too? And Jesus says, sure. Peter has a nice little run, but only for a bit. And then he and Jesus get in the boat together. It can be sort of comical, cartoonish. This would fit in the category of what I would sort of refer to as uh, an inside joke when I was in middle school or high school. And it was hard to tell the difference at times between my sense of humor and those two phases of life. Uh, my wife might say the difference is still not terribly meaningful. But, you know, you just had to be there, right? You just had to be there. No one else could understand how fun, how cool, how amazing that trip was. You just had to be there. Something about that passage, it seems to me, when isolated from the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, can give it a kind of syrupy, sticky, sweet veneer. One that makes it initially desirable, but also nearly impossible to challenge us, to provoke us to repentance and worship. So here are a few things that have happened just before this passage. Jesus has been home. That can be complicated, right? I'll just leave that there, but Jesus went home, and it was complicated for him. He experienced rejection. When he began to teach in the synagogue, people responded with astonishment. Where did this man get this wisdom and these deeds of power? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Simon and Joseph and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all this? And the Gospel of Matthew says they took offense at him. And Jesus did not do many deeds of power there because of their unbelief. And then Herod, right after this, has John the Baptist beheaded. Which then Jesus is told about by John's disciples. When Jesus heard about John the Baptist beheading, Matthew says, Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. 
When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and cured their sick. Then Jesus feeds 5,000 men besides women and children with five loaves and two fish. In case anyone missed that this was a miracle, there were 12 basketfuls left after everyone ate their fill. But did you notice what happened? Jesus sought solitude after hearing of John the Baptist's death. And instead, he arrived to find that a crowd had gathered. A crowd desperate for hope and healing. A crowd with more empty stomachs than food. This is where today's passage begins. Doesn't it change how we read the first verse? Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus really wants to be alone. And he had to fight to find time to be alone. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. It finally happens. At a really basic level, this reminds us that at the beginning of Lent, making time for a disciplined and intentional practice of our faith is not natural. It's not easy. It's something that comes through effort, through planning, and through intentionality. But it is essential. It's worth it. Okay, so as is so often the case, the Bible doesn't fill in all the gaps. Uh, we know it was evening and Jesus had gone to be, to great effort to be alone in order to pray. And we know that he finally is actually, in fact, alone. And we know that life continued as Jesus was alone and praying because the, the passage says, by this time the boat battered by the waves was far from land for the wind was against them. And it seems that Jesus either spent a really long time praying or he fell asleep. Our passage doesn't tell us, but it says that early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. I envision that he was spending intentional time connecting with the Father. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. It's amazing. This, is, to me, is one of those passages that we read it over and over again, and it's hard to internalize that this is the reaction of the sort of image that we see of Jesus walking on the water, like it is in so many other places in Scripture. If our first reaction is to ridicule the disciples, which I think is sometimes easy to do because they, they missed the point, they didn't get it, I'd like to invite you to think again about my neighborhood swimming pool. What would you do if you were out on a lake, an unexpected storm rolled in, and you were struggling to get back to the dock, and then you see a person walking towards you? Whoa, that's cool. Might not be the actual reaction that you would instinctively have. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Hearkening back to Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush, I am. I'm struck by both the lengths that Jesus went to to be alone with the Father 
and the lengths that he goes to to be with his disciples. So as we anticipate a Holy Lent, I offer this as an encouragement. Lent is not primarily about what you can do for Jesus. It's about putting yourself in a posture to receive him, to receive him well, to receive him deeply. And so our passage continues, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I really appreciate Peter's boldness and his desperation. Again, I think it's, it's easy to sort of use this as an illustration in other ways, but I kind of appreciate this, like, I want to be with you. And this realization of where the authority to be with him would come from, command me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind eased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. So here's how I see this passage directly connected to the beginning of a Holy Lent. The first thing that I see is desperation. Peter wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be obedient. He yearns to have Jesus do something that he cannot do himself. So you can give up Coke or Facebook, whatever. I recommend giving up Facebook. If you're not desperate to encounter Jesus, then whatever it is that you commit to as disciplines in Lent, you'll miss out. You'll have the form of godliness without the power. Let your soul cry out to God for more, for connection, for intimacy, for hope, for healing. Where are you desperate for God right now? Where are you desperate? Bring that to the Lord this Lent. Orient your Lenten disciplines around this place of desperation. Let it serve as a call to holy desperation. Related to that, I see, secondly, an invitation to dependence. It's not that complicated. Peter can't walk on water, right? But he does. But as soon as he notices his circumstances, as soon as his attention turns to the wind, instead of keeping his eyes on Jesus, he begins to sink. We are dependent creatures. We are dying. We will die. None of us escape that fate. We're dependent on God's grace. But one of the things that we find in this passage is that it's actually in sinking that we see a heartfelt cry of faith from Peter. And so many commentators have pointed out that 
Peter actually experiences deeper faith in the sinking than he does in the walking on water. This is a word of good news to a world that is broken and hurting and in need of hope. If faith doesn't come from the amazing things that you can already do for God, faith comes in the gut-wrenching cry of your soul, save me, I'm sinking. Eyes on me. Eyes on me. It's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get overwhelmed by what's happening under the surface of our personal lives, in our relationships, in our classes, our churches, the country, the world around us. It's easy to despair. Sometimes it even feels like a rational response. Hopelessness. Keep thinking about Peter. In a moment of faith and maybe a little bit of over-eagerness, Peter finds himself with Jesus doing what cannot be done. Eyes on Jesus. Walking to him. In some ways, it's not that complicated. (laughs) But then the wind comes. It seems like the wind always comes. What am I doing? When there's a storm, you're not supposed to get out of the boat. That's a problem. And uh, (laughs) I can't walk on water. I don't really know what I'm doing out here. And he begins to do what people who are standing on water should do. He starts sinking. But here is what I love. As he begins sinking, immediately he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Save me. Peter can be an easy target in some ways. But I find him to be an extremely compelling model for all of us in this moment. What would it look like as soon as we notice that we're sinking, if the cry of our heart was, Lord, save me, save me. We're not posturing, we're not trying to figure out how to say it in the right phrasing, but it's just our souls screaming out for the only one who can save. When you notice a gust of wind, you instinctively and immediately cry out to Jesus. I did when I first became a Christian, I think. But I'm not sure when it happened. Over time, I began relying on myself more and more when faced with adversity. I began pushing down the fear that Peter felt, telling myself I could make a way through. Eyes on me. It took me a while to realize how crucial that shift was and how devastating it was to my own sanctification. Because desperation is a gift. Though it probably does not make it on many Christmas lists. It's a gift because it reveals our dependence on God. 
As one commentator on Matthew has put it, Peter needed to sink in order to take the next step of faith in Jesus. Sinking increases our faith more than walking on water. It always begins with a cry for help. Eyes on me, not me. This is why the story of the prodigal son is one of the most joyful stories in Scripture. The truth is that we are all desperately dependent on God's amazing grace, but we are constantly at risk of forgetting who we are, of embracing the secular culture's value of self-reliance. We all need God to do in us continually what we are not able to do in ourselves. This is not a one-time transaction. Desperate dependence is another way of talking about holiness. The Spirit breathes into me every breath, and I breathe back out. Obedience, love, gratitude, worship. And like the disciples in the boat, when we're rescued by God, and we know that those who cry out to God will be rescued, we know that, right? We cannot help but worship our Savior. I don't think it's merely a happy theological coincidence that after Peter's desperate dependence on Jesus, we hear in Matthew the first confession by people that Jesus is the Son of God. So today, at the beginning of this season, I invite you to seek ways to cultivate desperate dependence on Jesus and to use the full arsenal of disciplines the embarrassment of riches that we have to train our minds and bodies on Jesus, to keep our eyes on him. Fasting is important not so that you can show how much restraint that you have, but because it's impossible to not be aware of the feeling of hunger, and that can drive you to a reminder of what it is that you're trying to be more deeply aware of. Ash Wednesday serves as a deeply countercultural, even offensive, reminder that we came from dust and we are returning to dust. We're mortal. We are going to die. None of us know how many days we have left in this life. Even as we face our mortality, though, those who are in Christ have hope. Even as we face our limitations, our inability, our brokenness, our shame, our need for healing, Jesus is with us. Gently calling, eyes on me. I'm right here. I'm with you. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? I'm here. Lent is not the spiritual Olympics where we find out who is the strongest, the fastest, or has the most endurance. Do not make Lent an, ad an adventure in missing the point. Don't make the focus of Lent your strength, your ability. Now hear me. Discipline is important. It's crucial. I love being in a place where I can take for granted that we're Wesleyan. We know this. It's who we are. Rely on all the means of grace because you need them in order to keep your eyes on Jesus. Good intentions and sincerity will not get you very far. I don't know what's going to happen during these 40 days. I have some particular areas in life that touch me closely where I particularly don't know what's going to happen during these 40 days. 
And so it's a good time to cultivate holy desperation. It's a good time to unapologetically be dependent on the one who is mighty to save. It's a good time to press in to God's heart who delights in bringing strength in our weakness. It's a good time for Lent. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know who is with us and where we should be training ourselves to focus our attention. So I don't know what's going to happen in your life, but I can promise you that come what may, Jesus is with you. He's with you. Do you know where he is? Can you see him? Let's keep our eyes on Jesus during this season of Lent. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.